0: positive classroom interactions as a high value teaching strategy isn't that always the case hello i'm colin clippick and you're listening to learning capacity this podcast is brought to you by learnfast improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999 if you're looking for science based language learning and reading programs for your school or child visit learnfasthome.com.au and you can subscribe to this podcast completely for free, search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, or visit soundcloud.com learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richart and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richart, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms, and now helps teachers introduce the framework into their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces, with an emphasis on practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part seven, where we discuss the cultural force of interactions. Interactions, the dynamic phenomenon that emerges when two or more objects have an effect on one another. In a culture of thinking, teachers' interactions with students show a respect for and an interest in students' thinking while nurturing their development as valued, competent individuals able to contribute effectively to the group. Simon, isn't this what teachers have always been doing? It doesn't really sound that radical to me. Do we need a culture of thinking to make this happen?
1: Hmm. Yeah, thanks for the question, Colin. And Agreed. I think it's what great teachers have always been doing. Great teachers are warm, caring, positive, genuine people who often have a great sense of humour and and they push students to think for themselves. We can probably all think of teachers that we had like this when we were children and, and we can probably think about just people in the world that we know, not necessarily linked to the world of education, who demonstrate those type of qualities do we need a culture of thinking to make this work? Is your question, you know, to nurture this idea of meaningful student to teacher interactions, which, which promote a place where thinking is at the foremost. Well, this is an important part of thinking about interactions. I think it's important not just to assume that these type of characteristics are the, uh, to do with the personality of a teacher something that they have, an innate part of who they are. Because if it's that, then the implication is that teachers can never get better. It's just a part of their personality, they've got it or they haven't. But what we talk about with cultures of thinking pedagogy is, can we isolate parts of that, aspects of meaningful teachers to student interactions? And then after isolating them, what can we do to help teachers bump those up and get even better at those things.
0: Yeah, you'd have to be able to look at it that way, I think, because if you were to walk into a new school, into a, a new environment, where you didn't have that already established personality understanding with the students, you'd have to be able to isolate it so that you could start working on it again from from ground zero, if you like.
1: Yeah, and it links back, Colin, to the idea of growth mindset. I mean, if, if we think that developing meaningful interactions with children is just the province of teachers that already have that type of personality then we're we're suggesting that nobody can ever get better and that's not what we talk about if cultures are thinking pedagogy and practice is anything it's it's a really practical framework and we want to look to provide ways of helping teachers bump up in these areas.
0: Yeah, Larry King, actually, in his book that he wrote some years ago now talks about that kind of thing, where interactions with people is something that you really can work on. I mean, some people do it naturally better than others, but he suggests that if you isolate those, those characteristics like you were just talking about, you can actually improve them significantly. There's, yes. a, uh, there's a TED Talk referred to in the chapter on, uh, on page 201, given by Rita Pearson, who recounts comments made by a colleague of hers who said, They don't pay me to like the kids, they pay me to teach a lesson. The kids should learn it. I should teach it. They should learn it. Case closed. Is this is this a hangover from the industrial days?
1: Well, first thing to say is I've I've personally, I've never come across a teacher who has said anything quite that extreme. Um, so I think that's probably, and I'm, I feel sorry for Ron that he has really. Right? It wasn't Ron in that case, but you know, it's, um, I think that's very unusual and it's really important to acknowledge that and important to acknowledge that we're in an amazing profession and the vast majority of teachers have the the best interests of, of children in mind i think it, in in that case if i if i heard a teacher say something like that then i'd try to adopt the perspective of being curious rather than annoyed yeah <laughs> um and I'd probably ask the question, what's going on for that person that's led them into having such an extreme reaction? Um, so in their case, it may not be a hangover for the, from the industrial days. It just might be more about something bad that's happened in their lives and is spilling over to, into a professional life.
0: It's interesting, doesn't, isn't it, that the quote says, they pay me to teach a lesson rather than they pay me to teach the children.
1: Mm. Yeah, which again indicates a, a distancing from the people. Uh, and a preoccupation with the experience.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, how our language has morphed and changed so that we don't often think about teaching children. And we, we talked about this in a previous discussion—the importance of language—that mm. we that we suddenly think, "Oh, I'm I'm there to teach a lesson," you know. I, you know, I'm not. It's it's separated from the people who are actually in the lesson or without whom the lesson would not exist. Yes. <laughs> So, Richard makes reference to the fact that uh, the importance of relationships is not new. And, well, I would agree with him on that. I think most people would. He cites authors as far back as Dewey in 1916 and a few others. And, uh, in fact, I would suggest that you could probably cite just about anything going back to the beginning of time because I don't think there'd be a human on this earth that didn't think that important relationships or that relationships were important, I should say. There's a quote referring to this in terms of quality learning communities that reads... Such communities are largely democratic in nature, stressing mutuality, support, connection and shared decision making. Now, that sounds great. Okay, so this is me talking now. Uh, It sounds great, but I reckon there'd be a lot of teachers who would also say, well, nice, but that's not my experience. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, those responses are very possible, but... Perhaps that there are times in life when we need to be idealistic and and being idealistic is is the best way forward for us. There's another great quote in the book, and I've also got it in front of me as well here. And I'm on page 203. And I've got a reference here to a a high school student who was interviewed by a researcher called um, Kathleen Cushman. And the comment that comes from this student, I think, is identifying what type of teacher student interactions work best. And this is what the student says. Remind us often you expect our best. Encourage our efforts, even if we're having trouble. Give helpful feedback and expect us to review. Don't compare us to other students and stick with us. That's what the students, it seems, want from us as teachers. And I think there's something really interesting about don't compare us to other students. You know, they don't want that. Each child wants an individual and a personalised experience. And and building on that type of of feedback from students, Ron in in the book goes on to cite John Hattie and talks about how there is a 0.72 effect size for positive teacher-student relationships. I also, when I read that, turned to Hattie and dug into that a little bit more. And and what Hattie's talking about with that 0.72 effect size, which is a significant effect size, is he's talking about the necessity to care for the learning of each student as a person, and also to empathize with students, to, to see their perspective, to communicate it back to them. These are ideas that, as you mentioned, are supported by so many other educational theorists over the years. You know, Dewey, Vygotska, Bruner. that transformative learning happens in the context of meaningful and rich student to teacher relationships. I think all great teachers know this.
0: It's interesting you mentioned John Hattie because there's a, uh, a documentary on the ABC, on the Australian Broadcasting Commission at the moment, called Revolution School, which I'm, no doubt you're familiar with, where yes. John Hattie is uh, interviewed in segments throughout the documentary. And he also makes reference to the quality of interactions, not only with teachers and students, but also particularly at home suggesting that uh, households that have very good quality interactions around school are the ones where there are strong correlations with student success. Interesting, though, and this, I'd like to use this as a segue, if I may, he, yes. talks, he talks about the fact uh, – this is John Hattie – talks about the fact that households that talk not so much about school, but about learning – are the ones where the results tend to be good. So if we were to start turning this around and, and, and not be thinking about being paid to teach a lesson and the kids should learn it, case closed, if we want to turn this thing around to be positive about it, do we start with the language?
1: Well, I think language is a big part of the answer. I mean, it's it's through language that we manage much, although not all, I think, of our interactions and relationships. But And it's interesting that you refer to that documentary and talk about what happens with parents at home. Um, that correlates with a lot of um, thinking that comes from the Project Zero team. And when I talk to parents about how to support the creation of a culture of thinking at home, one of the things I talk about is how can parents bring lively debate and discussion into the core of what happens in a home environment. And I know perhaps some parents are a bit frightened by that.
0: Yeah, well, I've, I've noticed that just watching the documentary and reading through this, uh, this chapter again has actually influenced the way I talk to my son. So at the end of the day, I have actually noticed now that I will say to him, so how was school today? And he'll say, oh, it was good. And I thought, well, hang on a second, I could change that around. Just a very slight change in my language can make a big difference. And so I say to him things like, what did you learn about today? So we're talking about the learning. And I tried that just yesterday. And he said, well, we learned about India. And I was able to then start another interaction, which then said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me something about it. And then he said, well you know, you don't drink the water out of the taps necessarily because the water's not safe, etc. And then he talked about a few other cultural issues as well. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Just with a very small change of language, you can actually turn things around pretty quickly.
1: And, and Ron writes about the next bump up, even after what did you learn today, is to ask what what great questions did you ask today? Um, and kids very quickly receive the message that, uh, okay, I better make sure I ask some good questions at school. <laughs> Um, And then that can lead to the transference of those rich discussions at home as well. If we can build a culture as parents at home where children are involved in lively debate, where they have to justify their ideas, where there is an expectation almost that they become passionate about thinking. Well, that has a huge impact on the on the type of learner that they become.
0: Interactions in the classroom can often be quite dull, and there's a classroom pattern that's mentioned in the chapter called Question-Response-Evaluate, or QRE. I suspect that this kind of interaction, which has been happening for a long, long time and probably quite regularly, needs to take some responsibility. Can you talk us through that?
1: Yes. So um, QRE stands for... So the Q stands for a question from the teacher. The R stands for a response from the student. And then the E stands for some sort of evaluation that again comes from a teacher. So, um, in its most simplistic form, that could be something like, "Okay, class, what year was the spinning Jenny invented?" And then a voice pops up, "1764." And the teacher says, "That's right."
0: <laughs> Excellent. Great work.
1: Well, that would be um, that would be a, a one form of a QRE it wouldn't necessarily have to be quite that simplistic. So uh, another version of that might be, um, why was the spinning Jenny invented? And a voice pipes up to speed up cotton production. And then the teacher might respond with something like, Oh yes, well you're on the way to understanding that. And it was a response to the fact that cotton production could not keep up with the demands of the textile industry. Um, So there it's perhaps a little bit more developed, but what's happening there, I think in this QRE structure is that it's just fundamentally teacher-centred. It's about, it's about an exchange between a teacher and a student. It can become what we've talked about in previous conversations, which is a game of guess what's inside a teacher's head. Um, there's a wonderful teacher called Cameron Patterson who's actually mentioned in, in uh, Ron's book here, and I believe you've interviewed Colin in a, in a previous conversation.
0: And he's been a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine.
1: There we are. And Cameron talks about this type of interaction as something called popcorning. The metaphor is interesting. It's the idea that in the, in the same way that when we, and I'm going to think about popcorn in the microwave now, that when we pop it in there, individual kernels of corn start popping. But that popping is happening in isolation. Each pop is disconnected from another pop. Whereas an, an alternative metaphor that um, Cameron has come up with, and I think works with the students on this metaphor, that you know, they understand this metaphor, is the notion of ice cream coning. Um, now, I personally prefer ice cream popcorn anyway, so it works well for me on many levels, Colin. Yeah, it um, works for me too. But it's this idea that when we have an ice cream on a, on a cone, we'll have a scoop of ice cream first, then another scoop of ice cream on top of that one, which builds on the first scoop. And then if we're having a particularly lovely day, another scoop of ice cream on top of that one. And the difference here, rather than popcorning ideas um, bouncing around in isolation, ice cream coning is when ideas build on one another. When in the context of a class discussion, one student connects with another student, connects with another student. And so the nature of the discourse moves the whole of that interactional experience away from just being a teacher with one student, but to becoming rich, meaningful, whole group discussions where ideas jump like sparks from child to child. And if we can facilitate that type of an interactional experience, that's a big way to create a rich culture of thinking in our classrooms.
0: More from our discussion with Simon coming up. If you'd like to hear all of the interviews in this eight-part series, then why not check out the Learning Capacity archives? You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or your favourite podcast service or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Ron Richart suggests three other, and I'll quote, fundamental actions for teachers interested in developing a culture of thinking while promoting high academic achievement independence and pro social development now there's a lot of there's a lot in that and yes. the, three, yeah, the the uh, the three fundamental actions he talks about are being non directive pressing for thinking and supporting student autonomy let's take a brief look at each one of those we'll start with being non directive um, confession here i've actually been pulled up in school before about being very direct and task orientated um, mm. or task focused is that what being non directive is alluding to
1: I think non-directivity it's it's not so much about lacking in direction and purpose because that's what being non-directive might sound like and not having a direction but rather what non-directivity is about is the notion that the teacher isn't the one in control all all of the time that it's it's the students ideas and contributions that are guiding the learning experience Non-directivity happens when students know that their ideas and their contributions are the basis for how the whole lesson is developing. There's actually a really powerful model, thinking routine that Ron writes about, but not in this text that we're exploring today. I'm I'm thinking back now to an earlier book of Ron's, which was uh, called Intellectual Character, written in 2002. And he introduces a, a model there Which is really powerful, and as a teacher, I've used a lot. It's called the leaderless discussion. I've used the leaderless discussion myself, but rather than talk about occasions when I've done that, I just want to I want to talk about an occasion when I saw a year six teacher using the leaderless discussion, Um, and I just remember it so clearly because it was just such a wonderful example, Colin, of what you're talking about here in terms of being non-directive. The class was studying a picture book, which I really recommend that your readers have a look at. It's called The Red Tree by Sean Tan, it's a pretty powerful book, particularly for some year six children to look at. It's, it's about, it's, it's a picture book about sadness. It's about, um, I guess about being lost in life, but ultimately it, it's a text about finding hope. Um, and so that's the, the message that comes at the end of it. So you, you know, you're not feeling deeply depressed by the end of the experience, sure. but it, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, really rich read that speaks to important parts of the human condition. I remember the, the teacher of this year six class was using the leadless discussion framework. And the way that that worked is that she just posed a big question to her class. And I think the question, and I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but I think it was something along the lines of, what does it feel like to be sad? That was the question. Oh, I guess and, and everyone, question.
0: Every, everyone would have a response for that, I'm sure.
1: Absolutely. And she knew that, but the question directly um, channels the big ideas that are being explored in the text. And so what she did is instead of having a traditional um, whole class discussion about this, she had what's called a leaderless discussion. And as leaderless suggests, she as the teacher was just one of the individuals participating in this discussion. So the idea is that everybody sits in a circle. One child might throw out an idea or, or response to that question. Um, Or it might just be another question that they've asked and other children in the circle raise their hands if they want to respond. The first child, after they finish speaking, they call on a fellow student to respond. So they will pick somebody to respond. That person will speak. Then that person will call on the next responder. If nobody calls on the teacher to be a part of this discussion, then the teacher won't be a part of the discussion. Um, it's driven by the learners involved in this experience. Oh, and there's another nice little strategy that sometimes I've, I've seen teachers use. And that's when, if a student raises their hand to be a part of the discussion, they have to hold up as many fingers as necessary to indicate how many times they've already contributed to the discussion. So that's <laughs> assuming, that, assuming
0: that they can keep count. <laughs>
1: Exactly. And the idea of that is that it it tries to promote participation and ensure equity to make sure that no one voice dominates. The leaderless discussion, as described in that book, Intellectual Character, I think is one really powerful and practical tool that teachers can use in order to build a greater sense of non-directivity into their classrooms.
0: Pressing for thinking. How do we go about that?
1: Yeah, this one means pushing, prodding, probing, getting children to think deeply and to think hard, I guess, in, in all of our interactions with them.
0: Is this just a, a, another form of, can you please elaborate on that answer that you just gave me?
1: Yeah, I think that that could definitely be a part of it. Um, and here's the interesting thing. I mean, there are many different possible ways in, in terms of pressing for thinking. I think back to a, a conversation I had as an English teacher with a with year eight student, who was trying to come up with an idea and then and then plan a short story that she was writing. And I remember the conversation really well because at the end of it, the, the student said to me how much she'd valued it. And the beauty of it was I actually hadn't told her anything. I'd not given her any ideas, which is always the temptation when teachers are working with ch- children trying to come up with stories. So I was asking questions like, okay, what what are the big ideas that you want to explore in this story? What What will your main character look like what type of person are they going to be what's going to matter to that character oh and here's a great one how might your character be different by the end of the story compared to what they were like at the beginning how does the story connect to the big idea that you're exploring all these type of questions Colin are are questions that in our interactions with young people show that we're pressing for thinking and make them do the thinking not us
0: Supporting student autonomy is one of those ones where I think the uh, the concept of two truths held in tension kicks in. Certainly, certainly does for me because, yes, we do want students to be autonomous. We want them to be uh, uh, independent, and uh, you know, one of the uh, popular terms is self-directed. But on the other hand, when students come to school, we like there to be order and uh, some form of control, and we don't want them to be entirely autonomous, in other words, you know, don't just wander around doing whatever you feel like you want to do. So how do we bring those two together? How do we support student autonomy whilst still maintaining some sort of regularity and order within our schools?
1: Yeah, and there's, there's lots of ideas bouncing around in that question. It's whether we're talking about control in terms of intellectual control or behavioural control. Obviously, there still need to be those behavioural routines in place in schools because children are children. And not yet adults, and even a lot of adults need behavioural routines to be in place. <laughs> I think as well. Um, but if we focus here on sort of on intellectual autonomy, um, well, I don't think that that means the same as laissez-faire. I don't think it means the same as just abandoning children and saying off you go, think and learn on your own. But we still need to provide the scaffolding to help them develop. A sense of personal autonomy in terms of their thinking there's a routine for that as well there's a routine for pretty much everything in life i think um, there's a really effective one called microlabs mm-hmm. that a number of teachers uh, around the world use a lot and microlabs is is essentially a routine for structuring meaningful um student-led discussion where they do actually discuss the issue at hand Um, and do so in a way that respects each other's thinking. Uh, It involves a a little triad, students sitting in groups of three, each student in turn having an allocated amount of time to speak, and others in the group not being allowed to talk over them during that time. What this this process does so powerfully is that it it really does support student autonomy. It helps them to develop their own thinking, their own learning, but within the context of a scaffold. And so hopefully what that does, Colin, is it it finds that balance that you were talking about there in your question between giving them some support but allowing, allowing them to develop independence and autonomy.
0: Intellectual autonomy is a phrase that I like the sound of very much. It's a little bit like allowing someone to... Uh, go down a a rabbit hole, so to speak, in terms of whatever subject they're doing. Let's say they're doing uh, physics, for example, and they might have to get through the curriculum uh, and they might have to study the things that they need in order to uh, successfully pass the exam. I know that sounds very olden days, but it's Mm. still still a reality. But then if that student were to say, hey, listen, I really like what Elon Musk is doing over there at SpaceX – I want to study rocket science the teacher would give them the freedom and the autonomy to say all right well go and find out what you can about rocket science and then let's talk about it and maybe we Mm -hmm. can do a little excursion in class like a just an intellectual excursion and we can talk about it for a while
1: yeah absolutely and it and there it's about creating opportunities for autonomy but then also in all of the interactions we have with young people to helping them build that autonomy for themselves
0: I think that relates to the way the chapter finishes off, unsurprisingly. It finishes with a section called Creating New Patterns of Discourse. And I just like that subtitle. <laughs> I think it sounds great. I think that's, that subtitle in itself is full of opportunity. And there's a, mm. quote, there's a quote there by Oakshott that reads, conversation is an unrehearsed intellectual adventure. And uh, I've also heard it said that digression is the essence of conversation. So how do we create this adventure for our students?
1: There's a metaphor that I've, I've thought about often in the past that I think connects to this question, and it's the metaphor of when we have interactions or meaningful interactions with young people, it's a bit like going fishing, and I'm uh, I'm not a fisherman. No,
0: I'm a terrible so, fisherman. Uh... <laughs> the fish are <laughs> so safe with me.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. That's good news. I'm, not, I'm hoping that my metaphor holds up for any listeners who may well know a lot more about fishing than I do. Um but when I think about fishing, it's, it's the idea that we can arrive, we can prepare, uh, we can have our fishing rod ready. We can have different types of bait. We can cast the line and we can, and we can drop that line in. But we don't know whether we're going to catch a fish or not. And I think that's important. That's really at the heart of meaningful teacher-student interactions. If when we ask questions, we know what the children are going to say, in advance, and we're almost hoping for them to say what we're already thinking they might say, how meaningful is that going to be in terms of a learning experience for them? But when we create opportunities for interactions, when we don't know what our interactions are going to result in, well, those type of interactions are more more meaningful. And so a practical example of what I think that looks like in a cultures of thinking classroom is the question, what else? And I use that question myself when I'm working with teachers. You know, you've thrown a question out to a bunch of learners. The, the, a number of responses have uh, immerse, emerged. But, and you don't know whether there's any more responses. But you go fishing. And you, as a teacher, you say, what else? And something tends to come up. And what else? And something else comes up. And those type of interactions, so powerful. There's a big difference between the question, what else, and anything else yes anything else implying that there might not be anything else but what else suggesting that there should be and actually fishing for it those are the type of really rich and meaningful interactions i think that um, build cultures are thinking
0: i think that's why the word adventure is so appropriate in this context because an adventure well it it implies a little bit of the unknown and uh, the unpredictable. And I suppose maybe that's why it's difficult for teachers to take that on because that in- implies also an element of risk. What do you think?
1: Yeah, we can't script really meaningful interactions. And there are a number of scripted products out there. Um, direct instruction, for instance, in not, not as a, a synonym for explicit instruction, but there's a, there's a direct instruction program which involves a very scripted program for learning. Um, that may well suit the needs of some learners. But for the majority of learners, if if our interactions with them are scripted, then we're not treating them as real people and we're not bringing the learning to them. We're not making the learning about them. We're making it about us. Meaningful interactions make sure that the learning is about the learners.
0: Indeed. Simon, it's been great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Colin. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, then visit ronrichard.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about language, learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.